listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. To learn more about Central Sanford, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumbach. God is good. Oh, I don't know. Is he really that good? God is good. And all the time. And good morning to those of you that are online, and thank you for worshiping at 11 o'clock, and uh, we are going to just jump into God's Word, so take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, you know, normally when, um, uh, when we begin, we begin with the time of prayer, but sometimes uh, people online don't necessarily uh, know or maybe feel the love from the people in the room, so what I want us to do is that if you're in the room, you're excited about all those watching online, let's give them a huge hand right now. And thank you so much for those of you that are watching online, also those of you that are listening on the radio. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7. Well, it is another summer Sunday in Florida, and yet we have another tropical storm breathing down our necks. And so, uh, you know, it takes this covid apocalypse to a new level. Uh, you know, right now people are worried and concerned about catching the virus, and then now we're worried about catching a storm. And, uh, you know, it's been crazy these past couple of years. We've had Hurricane Matthew and Hurricane Dorian just kind of do the same track. It looks like that Hurricane Isaias, or however you say his name, uh, I, I had it right in my head. Pastor Josh, I don't know if you saw on the social media, but he made sure that we understood how to pronounce it, and then I forgot it all. But I don't know if you know this, but in the past 15 years, we've only really had, uh, to my knowledge, two hurricanes hit the, uh, the state, Irma and Michael. And, uh, and even though we're threatened again this year and this season, we haven't had yet one unleashed on us. But there's going to come a day we're going to get a direct hit. But regardless of whether we get a direct hit from this tropical storm or from some other tropical storm, there is another storm out there. And we are actually, I think we are experiencing the feeder bands of this storm. This is the storm of God's wrath and the coming judgment. And this morning, I'm going to be talking to you about a topic that maybe many of you weren't necessarily expecting to hear this morning, and that is the topic that the end is near. Uh, it, it, it is approaching faster than we maybe are aware of. As a matter of fact, somebody told me once, he said, it's later now than it's ever been. I think the second coming of Christ is nearer now than it's ever been before. And so this morning, we're going to dive in, look at a passage of Scripture, just a couple of verses. They're going to help us as believers think through how we live in life of the second coming of Christ. Peter here in 1 Peter is writing to a group of believers. They're scattered all around the Roman Empire. They are under intense pressure and persecution from both the government and the culture around them. They were the elect exiles who were suffering for their faith. Uh, don't just think that their suffering was a slight remark on Facebook or Twitter. It was imprisonment, it was lost jobs, it was even lost lives. And if we think that our days are dark and scary, those days in which we live in pale in comparison to the days in which these believers in the first century lived in. And Peter here is preparing Christians and believers of how they can live their life in a God-hating, self-exalting, perverted, and twisted world. And what he's doing in this text is he's giving hope and encouragement for believers to live their life as strangers and exiles in this world until Christ returns. Now, in this idea of the second coming of Christ, which is going to be our primary topic this morning, there are 318 references to Jesus' second coming in the New Testament. If you were to think about the number of words and the number of verses in the Bible, that would be one out of every 13 verses would, would be dealing with the topic of the second coming of Christ. 
It's been said that almost every moral command in the New Testament is tied to the second coming. And so what we have to understand is that the second coming of Christ is not the crazy, uneducated uncle of Christian theology. It is essential for everyday Christianity. And so the premise of the verses we're about to read is this, is that you, when you and I know that Christ is returning soon, this should make us live differently in this dark, difficult and discouraging world. Knowing that Christ is returning soon should make us live differently in this dark, difficult, and discouraging world. So let's stand as we read God's Word in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Even those of you that are home, you can stand right now for this message. Let's read God's Word. The Bible says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be so self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins, you may be seated. Knowing that Christ is returning soon should make us live differently in this dark, difficult, and discouraging world. Two points, two questions we want to ask our text this morning. Number one, what does it mean to be living in the last days? And two, how should we now live in the last days? So let's look here at verse number seven. Peter says that the end of all things is at hand. What is he talking about? The end here is, is referring to the second coming or the judgment of Christ, which he is saying is at hand. That is, it is imminent. It is soon. It could happen at any moment. Now, what is Peter meaning here? Because we're reading this some 2,000 years after Peter has written this, and it seems that in that moment, Jesus does not return. And maybe some of you are thinking, well, if Jesus was soon to return then. What's going on here? Because it could not have been as imminent if it's some 2,000 years later. I mean, you remember uh, there was a book that came out called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Would Return in 1988. And uh, guess what happened? He didn't return. And so the guy, the, the same guy that wrote the same book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Is Going to Return in 1988, wrote a second book called 89 Reasons Why Jesus Would Return in 1989. He didn't go to 90 Reasons. He said he made some miscalculations. But what has, what has come as a response to this, especially as believers, of talking about the end of the world, talking about the end of the age, some, some people, when you think about that, you think of some crazy person walking on the side of the road saying, holding up a sign saying, the end is near. And what some have done with this is they've used this thought, this, this essential uh, doctrine of the second coming of Christ to discredit Christianity. Because here's what they'll say. You know, these apostles were wrong. They said that Jesus was going to return in their lifetimes, and he didn't return, so they must be wrong, and therefore the Bible is foolish, and it's made up, and you shouldn't trust or believe in it. Well, here's what I want you to understand. Peter, neither Peter nor any of the writers of the epistles ever taught that Jesus would return in their lifetime. What they did teach and what they did hope is that Jesus would return and that that return would be near. But yet, Jesus said himself, the, the, both Peter and Paul and John, none of them said that they knew exactly when Jesus was going to come. And if they didn't know, if Jesus didn't know, neither do we. But here's what we do know, that according to what the Bible teaches, that it could be any moment. It could be any minute. minute. Now, Peter anticipated that someone was going to argue and say, well, you know what, uh, Jesus has returned soon, and so what you're saying is a bunch of baloney. And he writes in his second epistle, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse number 3, he says this, knowing that in the that knowing first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. He said haters are going to hate, scoffers are going to scoff, and they're scoffing following their own sinful desires. And here's what they're going to say. They're going to say, where is the promise of his coming? 
And these are people who say, you know what, you guys say that Jesus is coming back, this big Messiah that you said saved your life and changed your world. Well, where is he? You said he was going to come back. And then Peter here retorts in verse number 8. He says, but we must not overlook, we do not overlook this one fact. Beloved. I love how Peter says, beloved. That, that is, you know, that's kind of his nice way of saying, you're an idiot. Do not overlook one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. See, God lives in the eternal present. God is eternal. And so 2,000 years to God is, is more like just two days to us. Now, God doesn't, is timeless, but what, what Peter is getting at here is that for God to say that the end, of near, the end is near and it's 2,000 years later is not strange to the God who is eternal. See, God works in time and he works in space and he has worked in history and he's done several acts. For act number one is that God stood on the platform of nothing and spoke everything into existence in creation. Act two is he made precious promises to Adam and Eve after the fall in the garden. Act three is he made precious promises to Abraham, then to Moses, then to David, then through the prophets, and then his great act of the incarnation where Jesus Christ, the infinite God, became an infant and came and lived and dwelt among us and lived a sinless life. And then the great act of redemption where Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead. And now this great work where God is multiplying his people and building his church. And as we look at the different acts of what God has done, there is yet one act that is not yet complete. And that is the return of Christ. It is the last act. I don't know if you've ever gone to one of your kids' plays or grandkids' plays and you go and you see act one, act two, act three. I don't know about you, but for me... I am always looking forward to act, the final act, right? You heard this song. I'm glad that's over. I'm glad that song is over now. The final act, but yet you don't understand the final act might be 30 minutes long. But you're so excited about the final act. Well, here, the last act that God will do until we go into eternity is the consummation of this world, which begins with the return of Christ. And so when Peter says that the end is near, he's not misspeaking here. He's speaking truth. And let me illustrate this, I think, in a very practical way. A couple of weeks ago, my family and I were at the mall in Tampa. We were there on vacation. And when, when my family goes to malls, we, we tend to, April and Anna will go to some shops, and then me and the boys will go to other shops. Well, uh, we went to this place, and we were going to go eat lunch. Uh, we were going to go to God's uh, Chicken House, Chick-fil-A. And... Uh, uh, we were, we were going to go as soon as they were done. And so April and Anna went into this store that the boys and I had no desire to go in. It's a place called Claire's. Have you ever been to Claire's before? You can get piercings and Hello Kitty things and all kinds of trinkets and junk for, for real cheap. Well, I didn't want to go in there. Neither did the boys because we were afraid we were going to come out with piercings that we didn't want. And so we waited outside. Well, as we were waiting outside, waiting for them, knowing that we were going to go eat lunch, one of the boys said to me, he said, Dad... Why don't we go to the other store and look at guy stuff? And so there's some sports stores there. And I said, no, we need to wait. We need to wait on your mother. She could be done any minute. <laughs> Fifteen minutes later, the same boy came to me and said, Dad, we could have gone to the other store, seen everything, and have been back by now. But there we were waiting. Now listen, was I wrong that she, was, she could return at any minute? No, she could have come any minute. 
I was not wrong when I said 15 minutes earlier to the boys that your mom could come back any moment. Now, in hindsight, she didn't come. But April could have come at any moment, and if she would have come and I wasn't there, we would have all been in trouble. (laughs) So what I'm saying here is that Peter is right when he says the end is near. Because at any moment, Christ could return. There is nothing since his resurrection from the dead that has kept him from returning. Now, you say, well, Pastor, what about Matthew 24? And what about all these signs? All of those are signs and, 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 and birth pains that lead to the day. They are just signs that point to it. So wars and rumors of wars, famine and pestilence, and all these different things are all signs. But there is nothing that has kept Christ from returning. And there's nothing that will keep Christ from returning. And since Jesus rose from the dead, we have been living in the last days. The last days are, are the time between the first coming and the second coming, and we have no idea when Jesus is coming, so we should live our lives like he could come at any moment. Peter says that the end is near, and then the question is, how do we live with that in mind? Well, the verse 7 says, the end of all things is at hand, therefore, transition word, in light of the fact that Jesus could return at any moment, this is how we are to live. As the great theologian Charles Spurgeon said, when you see a therefore, ask it, what is it there for? Here he is saying that in light of what Christ uh, is promised, that he will return, in light of the fact that the end is near, this is how we should live. Here's the question. If you knew Jesus was coming back tonight, how would you live today? Would it be different? Well, maybe it's the same or maybe it's different, but here Peter tells us how we should live in light of the second coming. Knowing that Christ is returning should change three areas of our life. Number one, how we think. Number two, how we pray. And number three, how we love. It should change our thinking. In verse 7, he says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be sober-minded and self-controlled. Self-controlled, sober-minded. Both of these words are in reference to the mind and how we think. To be self-controlled is to keep your heads when others are losing their minds. Here he says to keep your head about you. To be sober-minded, we kind of think about this with alcohol, sobriety. But here the thought is to be clear-headed, to be sane rather than insane. So the thought of sanity is this. Sanity is being in touch with reality. Insanity is being out of touch with reality. So to the world, to our current world, if you live your life as if Jesus is returning, if you live your life as the end is near, then the world says you're insane, you're crazy. But God says if you don't live your life with the understanding that Jesus could return, then you're crazy. Because if we as believers do not live our daily lives as if the end is near, we're out of touch with reality. One pastor says we are driving with our eyes closed. Now, why is it that he says that we need to have self-control and sober minds? The reason why is because the biggest struggle probably in your life is the battle over your mind. How you think and what you think about will either keep you sane or will make you insane. See, as believers, you and I always, even though we have the mind of Christ, we still, in this walk of sanctification, are having to deal with things that are in our minds and in our brains. If you watch a lot of news lately, if you listen to a lot of the pundits on the radio, if you get on a lot of social media, you're going to be crazy. Amen? You're going to be nuts. 
Because you're going to get the garbage from this world coming and infiltrating your mind. And so as believers, we need to be self-controlled. We need to keep our heads and we need to be sober-minded. We need to be clear-headed. And so we need to think of things, or we need to think of things that are above where Christ is, and think of the gospel, and think of the, the truths of the gospel, and we need to think it with our full minds. But it's hard to think about those things when our minds are infiltrated with other things like addiction or pornography or trivial foolish things. You know, one of the struggles in, in, in our day, especially with Gen Z and, and millennials, and even people that are older than that, is what's happened, especially the new phenomenon in the past 15 years, is social media. Uh, research has shown, literally, that over the past 10 years, social media has had a profound effect on the human mind. There are a lot of different studies that have been done on attention spans, but one particular study said that people, people's attention span has gone from 12 minutes to 5 minutes. I have to think about that. Even while I'm preaching, I, I feel like that every 5 minutes we come in and out, right? Sometimes I notice when you come in and out. And I've actually, from time to time, thought, well, I'm going to call on them to pray at that moment. I'm going to be thankful that the lights are so bright I can't see you. Um, but God does. The study also says that people are constantly, uh, are, are now forgetting more information than ever before because of information overload that we get from social media. There's a study that was done by UCLA that said that five hours of social media a day can change and rewire your brain completely. In the similar study that was also done in California, the land of fruits and nuts, just kidding. Although they do have, anyway. Kids were asked, in the similar study, kids were asked to give up social media and their phone for 24 hours. They watched and studied the kids after these 24 hours, and here were the following symptoms. Headaches, phantom phone vibrations. You ever had that? You thought your phone was like... Reaching for a phone that wasn't there was also another symptom. Irritability, restlessness, and depression. 24 hours. Could you imagine 48? They would be on the roof. These things are what cloud our minds. And you say, Pastor, no, no, I got to listen. Even I struggle with this. We all have to have a fight over our minds. Because the world and the world system and Satan wants to mess up our minds. If we can get fuzzy-headed and foggy-minded, it will keep us from doing what God has called us to do. Because when you and I live in light of the second coming of Christ, if we are living and we're thinking clear, it's going to help us get our priorities straight. See, if you believe that God is real and if you believe that judgment is coming, then this should change how you think about your life and what is most important in your life. It should help you reevaluate because here's what I found, that a lot of things that you and I obsess about in light of eternity are not that important. And if you believe that God's Word is true, one day you and I will stand before God, and when we do, the bank accounts that we have will be meaningless. Our reputation will be insignificant. Our position at work will not be important. Our marital status will not matter. The only thing that's going to matter when we stand before God in eternity is that do I have a relationship with Jesus and what did I do to impact eternity? John Piper in his book, Coronavirus in Christ, his recent book, didn't write it three years ago. It would have been nice though. That was a funny joke in my mind. Didn't come across very well. Is that through the virus... Piper says, Jesus is saying to us, here's what, here's what we have learned through Corona Apocalypse. 
that the world you are living in will not last forever. You need to think about the world that is coming and prepare for it. Wake up. Here's what I want you to understand. The pre-COVID world will never be, the, we'll never go back to pre-COVID world. I don't care who you are, what you are. We'll never, it's like 9-11. We'll never go back to a pre-9-11 world. Once we get through this, if Christ doesn't return or if things just don't get something else worse, once we get through this, whatever normal is is not going to be completely normal. But here's what I want you to get at. Thinking clearly and being sober-minded does not mean that we obsess constantly on the end times. I know a lot of people love the end times. There's nothing wrong with studying the end times. The book of Revelation is the one book in which God promises that if you read, you will be blessed. But what I'm afraid of is that many people will go to the extreme. Instead of just completely putting out the second coming, they'll be completely obsessed with it, and they'll dissect every major world event as a sign of the coming. And they'll read every end times book. They'll rewatch every movie called Left Behind, and they'll watch every television show dedicated. And they'll be fixated on times and dates. Here's what the Bible teaches. You know what? I've had a lot of people over the years, Pastor, what is your end time views? What's your eschatology? Are you, uh, do you believe premillennial? Uh, are you premillennial? Are you amillennial? Uh, uh, do you believe in pre-tribulation rapture? Do you believe in post-tribulation rapture? Do, are you mid-wrath, pre-wrath, all kinds of wrath, all kinds of different things that come out there? Here's my eschatology in one sentence. You want to hear it? Jesus is coming back. Be ready. That's it. Jesus is coming back. Be ready. That's all it is. Now, I have ideas. I have thoughts. But everything is speculation. But that's the one revelation. Jesus is coming back. Be ready. And because of that, it should change how we think. It should change how we think. It should change how we operate. It should change a lot of things that we do. But not only should it change how we think, but also should change how we pray. Notice he says, be self-controlled, be sober-minded. For what? For the sake of your, everybody with me, your prayers. For the sake of your prayers. So what does that have to do with the end times? Well, having a clear mind that is set on the hope of Christ is the secret to a powerful prayer life. People who have lost their minds panic rather than pray. If you are insane in the membrane, insane in the brain, your prayer life will suffer. Prayer is what sustains the believer in light of the end of days. And therefore, prayer should be urgent and fervent in the last days. The irony is, is that in the day that we need prayer the most, most Christians are praying the least. God's people are called to pray. Peter will call believers a kingdom of priests. What is a priest? A priest represents the people to God. What is a prophet? A prophet represents God to the people. We are not called a kingdom of prophets. We are called a kingdom of priests. And as a kingdom of priests, we are to make intercessory prayer on behalf of other people. We should pray for our families. We should pray for our neighbors, our church, our community, our city, our nation, and our world. If we, as God's people, will not pray for this city or the city that we live in. Who will? See, prayer is not pointless. Prayer is precious. It is powerful. And so if we are living our lives in light of the second coming, we don't panic. What do we do? We pray. Philippians 4, verse 6. Paul writes, do not be anxious about anything. Well, that's good for you, Paul. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In other words, he says, worry about nothing and pray about everything. 
Now, we are to pray. Jesus said we are to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. As we pray, we rest in the sovereignty of God. And I want to just reiterate, if there ever was a time for the church to be praying, it's now. We need to be urgent in praying for those who don't know, love, and worship Jesus. And we don't have time to take that for granted. We pray over so many crazy things that we forget to pray over the things that are most important. You and I need to pray like the end is near. The end is near. You know what a lot of people do uh, at the end of the year with their budgets? Uh, if you work in companies and you look at the, look at the end of the year and, and you see that you've got a lot of money left. This is if you're working for a corporation that has money. And there's a lot of money left in your budget. You know what a lot of people will do? They'll spend that budget at the end. They'll go hard at it. Well, listen, the end is near. And you know what we should do as believers? We should go hard at it. We should pray bold prayers and big prayers and daring prayers. We should tap into the power of God and pray like we truly believe that prayer works and that Jesus is alive. Mark Batterson said this. He said, bold prayers honor God and God honors bold prayers. God isn't offended by your biggest dreams or your boldest prayers. He is offended by anything less. If your prayers aren't impossible to you, they are probably insulting to God. Pray. In light of the second coming of Christ, pray. Turn your worries into prayer. Send the same energy you would spend worrying, put that same energy into praying. And then the last thing, how you love. How you love. Verse 8. Above all, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, sincerely, truthfully, since love covers a multitude of sins. He says that in light of the return of Christ, believers need to keep loving each other and need to love each other. Here he's speaking to one another is to other believers. He says that there should be unity and harmony in the body of Christ rather than hatred and division. Now the problem is that in the last days, the Bible says that the love of many is going to grow cold. One of the issues of our day is the proliferation of anger and hatred and strife and division and violence and ugliness. If you say, I don't believe that people are angry, well, then you are living under a rock. People are offended at everything and everyone. And here's the deal. What American culture does is that if you offend us, we will cancel you. And so if you offend us, we're not just going to be mad at you. We're just going to cancel you. We're just going to say you don't exist anymore. We're going to shame you out of existence. Because in the cancel culture, a single mistake will, is perpetually unforgivable because it's not simply a guilty act, but it's that mistake that defines that person's identity. And so no longer do I look at you and what you've done. I look at you and who you are. You are a shameful person. Therefore, you are to be canceled. And so in a cancel culture, you and I are defined by our latest mistake. Well, in the church, we have to understand that's not the way it should be. That we shouldn't be known for hatred and divisiveness. Let me just tell you something. You know what's coming in November? Division. In our nation, it's already here. But even in our church, do you know that there are people in our church that are going to vote differently? They're not going to vote for the same people you're going to vote for. They may not have the same political values that you have. And we got to be careful what we say and, and what we post and, and how we write because we could be putting ourselves in basically calling someone who is a brother or a sister in Christ and calling them an unbeliever because they're not voting the same person you're voting for. Do you think that's biblical? 
No, you say, well, Pastor, how can somebody vote for somebody? Da, 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 da. How could you? They may say the same thing to you. How can somebody who calls himself a Christian vote for that person? Listen, that's why we can't put our tent peg too deep in this world. This world's not our home. And the world's not going to be fixed by a president or a senator or a congressman or by a governor or by any legislator. It's not going to be fixed through lawsuits. It's going to be fixed through love. And that's why he says here that love covers a multitude of sins. He's quoting Proverbs 10.12. Proverbs 10.12 says this, Hatred stirs up strife. Duh. What do you think's going on? All this stuff, all these protests, all this writing, all the things that you hear, the vitriol that you read on Twitter and that you watch in the news and the, 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 just the horrible ugliness, it's hatred. And what does hatred do? It stirs up strife. But what is the opposite? Love covers all offenses. Love covers a multitude of sins. Peter's application for love in the church was that for people in the church to not be so easily offended by others in the church and to be quick to forgive them in the church. This does not downplay the seriousness of sin, but it forgives others of their offenses. One commentator said that this does not let the wrongs done within the Christian community come to their fullest and most virulent expression. In other words, when we love other people, it doesn't downgrade the fact that people have offended us. And there are some offenses that need to be dealt with properly. But there are many other offenses that just need to be forgiven. And so what he means is that we don't go around keeping a list of wrongs or looking for faults in others, but we go around seeking to think the best of others, not spending our time dwelling and thinking about what others have done to us. And we need to be standing quick to forgive one another. And here's why. If we don't forgive one another in Christ as believers, Realize we're stuck with each other for eternity. And knowing God, God may make you live next door to somebody that you can't stand. That's not in the Bible, but it could happen. He says love covers a multitude of sins. So when, I, so when he says that you love somebody, that you forgive them. But here's what I want you to understand. That when this word cover is given, it's not that you just cover over it. This is important truth here. He's not saying that you just hide it. The word cover here is not hiding. It's to take away. To take away. Let me illustrate this. Let's say you and I go out to lunch after church. The bill comes, and they say, who, who, is it one ticket? Is it split? And we say split. We're going to go Dutch. And you get look at the bill, and you look at me, and you have a panic look on your face, and you say, oh, pastor, I forgot my wallet. Now, that's happened to me quite a bit. And I look at you and I say, don't worry. I got you covered. What do I mean by that? When I say I've got you covered, doesn't mean that we're going to hide your bill under my bill and take off. <laughs> when, that mean, when I say I've got you covered, it means I'm going to take your bill and I'm going to pay that bill so that you no longer have a bill. When we love others and forgive others, it doesn't mean that we hide the offense. It just means that we forgive the offense, that we pay for it, that, that we get over it and we deal with it properly and correctly. Well, why would we ever do that? Why would we ever want to forgive other people? You want to know why? Because Jesus did that for us. No one will ever offend you more than you and I have offended him. 
No one will ever sin against you more than you and I have sinned against him. And yet he forgave us. He loved us. He is quick to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus loves the canceled. He just does. What is going to change this world is love. That's what's going to change the world. Al Mohler in his book, The Gathering Storm, in his conclusion wrote, Christians do have a political responsibility, and politics do matter. Governments matter. Laws matter. Elections matter. Economic policies matter. Everything matters. But, are, but how are we to think about this responsibility? What motivates and guides us? The answer is love. The church's greatest secret weapon is love. Our love for each other is the power of God that wakes people up from their sins. Jesus said, by this shall all people know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. Around this time last year, I was in the Middle East. And I, while I was in the Middle East, I was in a very hostile country. And I met a man who was a devout Muslim. He was displaced by ISIS and was moved to southeast Turkey. And uh, he was in southeast Turkey and he was basically homeless and broke. He and his family, they were just refugees. And he was placed somehow in a Christian village. He said, while he was in this village, he said, I've never felt love like this before. They were so kind to me. They took care of me. They fed us. They, they helped make sure that we get some housing. They respected us. They loved us. And he said, we were, somehow we were able to move back to our country in northern Iraq. And he said, there I met this other gentleman, and that gentleman pointed me to Jesus. And here's what he said. He says, it was the love of Christians that pointed me to the love of Christ. Why should we think differently? Why should we pray differently? Why should we love differently? Because there's a whole world out there that needs Jesus. We can't look like the world. We can't go to other people and say, trust and believe our God and let Him change you if they, all they see in us is what they see in themselves. And you and I will only think, pray, and love differently if we truly believe that Jesus is returning and we're not afraid of it. See, Christ is returning. That's not fake news. And if you are afraid of His coming or if you don't believe in His coming, then you're not ready for His coming. And if you want to live a life of no fear in this life or the life to come, it only comes through Jesus. See, when you and I look at what Jesus has done for us and, and which He took the storm of God's wrath for us on the cross, when He returns, it's not going to be for our judgment. It's going to be for our rescue. And so we embrace it. It gives us hope. It helps us live. It gives us strength for the day and hope for tomorrow, knowing that Christ, when He returns, is not here to judge me. He's here to rescue me. But because of that, I want to share His love with other people. The early church um, used to end their services with a word. Maybe you've heard this word before. It's a word called Maranatha. You ever heard that word before? Maranatha. Somebody would say Maranatha. And everybody else would say, and it could be today. The word Maranatha is means the Lord is coming. So somebody would say, the Lord is coming. And the people would say, it could be today. Let's practice that. I'm going to say the word Maranatha, and you just say, and it could be today. Maranatha. 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 It could be today. And if it were today, are you ready?
If it is today, this is your last chance to repent. If it is today, it's your last chance to forgive. If it is today, it's your last chance to share the gospel with a friend, a neighbor, a family member. It could be today. If it's not today, guess what? It could be tomorrow. Are you ready? The end is near. And because the end is near, it should change how we think, it should change how we pray, and it should change how we love. The time is late. The need is great. And for those of you watching online and those of you in this room, I want to invite you to a personal relationship with Jesus. And, I, and for those who have a personal relationship with Jesus, I want you to live in light of the second coming of Christ. That the good old days are ahead. They're not behind. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, I know that in these days, in these dark, perilous days, we allow so many things to cloud our minds. Lord, we ask that you would help us to just set our minds on you. Lord, help us to pray like we've never prayed before and to love as you've called us to love. Lord, for those watching online and those listening on the radio later today, we pray that your Holy Spirit would use this message. And Lord, if there's anyone here in this room or online or on the radio that doesn't know your Savior, I pray, God, today they would know you, that they would trust you. And maybe they have questions. So, God, I pray that you give them boldness to reach out to us or maybe in this moment to pray and trust you as their Savior, to pray a prayer like this, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. But I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I believe He rose from the dead. And I ask that He forgive me and save me. In Jesus' name. Lord, I pray that many people would trust you today. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're in the room or you're watching online or listening on the radio, I want to invite you to take your next step. And you do that by getting your phone out and texting the number that Raina gave us earlier. 407-338-4024. 407-338-4024. And what you need to do is just say, hey, I need to talk to somebody. You can put your name and say, hey, I need to talk to somebody. Or I'd like to trust Jesus as my Savior. I want to take that next step and be baptized. Or I want to be involved in a community group. Or I just have a special prayer need. Whatever that is, you feel free to text and you'll receive a response immediately. You'll receive a response today. Thank you for listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. For more information or how to take your next step, visit us online at centralsanford.net.